0: Welcome back to the things we all carry. I'm sitting here today, the day after Christmas, uh, kind of recovering. Obviously Christmas is always a a time where you, you kind of get worked up for it, amped up for it. And then kind of a, whether, whether you intend to or not, there's a little bit of a letdown after Christmas where you kind of, okay, let's finish out the year and get, get the new year started. And we're kind of in that gap week between one holiday and the next, um, a little bit of downtime, both emotionally and physically, I would, I would imagine for everybody, you know, I did, I did some of the traditional things for Christmas this year that I would normally do. I did some baking for the crew. I I did some baking for myself. Um, but it was very low key. Uh, and I did spend, excuse me. I did have a quite a few moments yesterday where, where my mom came to mind during Christmas and, uh, I didn't focus solely on her, but, she was there. She was there in my head. She was there in my heart. And I thought about her. I thought about her, her desire to have stayed alive through Christmas. And I wish she had gotten that chance to do that. Um, it's okay. She, is she, no, I don't say it's okay, but she had a number of really good Christmas times with, with family and friends and, and 80 plus years of Christmases. I'm, uh, I'm battling a cold. I lost my voice the other day at work and I have it back, but I don't, but it's not strong and you can probably hear it in my voice. Um, but at least I don't sound like a teenager today, but I'm going to keep this intro short just for the fact that I don't want to wear my voice out. And, uh, I kind of, I kind of sound like a two pack a day smoker today. So, um, in that, I just want to reintroduce Marshall. Marshall is a coworker of mine, a friend of mine, a coworker of mine, he, um, he's a newly promoted fire captain in my department. Uh, he, he just got the, the news that he'll be promoted and I believe it's official in January. So huge cor- Congratulations to Marshall for that. He, uh, I think he's one of the good guys. I think that he's going to do well by his people and we need more leadership like that in the fire service. Uh, all too often today, I, I keep seeing people talk about their retirement and how to pad more money into the retirement instead of focusing on the reason why they should be taking those leadership positions, which is to look out for your people and to create a better sense of, I guess, family in their crew in the fire service. Um, there's, we, we've got plenty of the me going on. We need the us more, the more of the us in the, in the fire service. And that sounds weird because you really should have the us as the basis of the fire service, but I've seen more than me going on and someone like Marshall getting promoted, I think lends itself to, a an us atmosphere. Uh, Marshall's going on a little bit over 15 years in the fire service. Uh, he was, he is, excuse me. He is a cancer survivor. He was diagnosed with cancer at age 19 when he started college. It was an aggressive cancer, which they actually, it was touch and go. I think, uh, he was told that he probably wasn't going to make it. Um, and he, he beat that. He, he ended up with, uh, with his life handed to him after cancer. All right, now go find yourself. And that's tough for a, for a 20 something year old kid to go, okay, I'm not going to die. So now I need to switch gears and figure out what I'm going to do. Um, and that's when he found the fire service. He went to paramedic school and he became competitive for the hiring process. And he, and he, he found his way to the fire department. And he has always had this little nagging thing in the back of his head. It's, it's a survivor's guilt because he made it when all these, a number of other kids didn't make it, but he's also waiting for that shoe to drop. He, he told me that he, you know, he waits constantly for every year he goes to get checked out that he's going to get the news that, that some cancer is back in his body. And that's a battle he has to wage every year, maybe even every day. I don't know, but it's got to be tough when you kind of just live waiting for the other shoe to drop. Marshall's experienced quite a bit in the fire service to include, he, he, he had to live through the suicide of a, of a crew member. Um, and he talks about that. He's very candid and very open about how he dealt with the, the suicide of, of one of our coworkers. His name was Marcello. Um, it was a shock as most suicides are. Uh, and it, it hit that crew very, very hard. And Marshall talks about dealing with suicide and how to get past it and how to um accept what has happened um he also talks about his his family and and his son's struggles with adhd and how he's how he's tried to how he and his wife have 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 made adjustments in their marriage and in their their careers in order to get their son the schooling and the care that he needs and i followed along in this story from a distance. And I reach out every once in a while to Marshall and let them know what I'm thinking, what I'm thinking and how proud I am of what they're doing. Um, it's not easy. And he and his wife are doing a hell of a job with, with their kids. And it's, it's kind of fun to watch. Uh, I know for them, it's a lot of work and it's busy, but man, it's going to pay off for them. He also talks about finding therapy and why he needed to do it and how he might've been tearing the family apart with some of the, un. um, untreated I guess issues that he had going on and in from the fire department from cancer from you know his son from from anything that could create these anxious or anxiety and anger um so he's he's very open about a number of things and it's just a it's a it's a it was just a really good conversation with Marshall and I'm happy to bring it to you once again it was originally released as episode seven so he's one of those really early episodes so if you haven't heard this I'm um, happy to bring it back out and reintroduce Marshall to you. You guys take a listen, enjoy it, and get out there and do something for yourself. The things we all carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Thank you for joining me for another episode of The Things We All Carry. This week I sit down with Marshall. I first met Marshall seven or eight years ago in a Gold's gym here in Virginia. We quickly figured out we were both firefighters in the same department. I got to know Marshall a bit during the times we worked out together. However, this conversation goes much deeper than any we had in the gym. Marshall discusses his battle with cancer, life after cancer, the trauma of losing a coworker, and his struggles at home. I appreciate both the friendship and the time Marshall spent sharing his story. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram, at thethingsweallcarry, or email thethingsweallcarry.com, to offer support and share your own story. Please remember to leave a review in iTunes and give a shout out to any first responders you may know, love, or care about. Enjoy the show.
1: Yeah, no problem.
0: Alright, so if you're ready, we can I can see if I can butcher this intro and we'll go from there. Let's do it. Alright. Today, we're sitting down with Marshall. He's out of Virginia. He's been a firefighter for 14 years, paramedic for the entire time. He's here to talk about his story, some of his experiences in the fire service, and some of his experiences outside of the fire service before he even joined, which affected him in the fire service and in family life to today. So I'm going to let Marshall talk a little bit about his family, his background, his fire service history, and then we'll get into the meat and
1: potatoes of his story. So how you doing, Marshall? Doing great, appreciate you having me. I know we talked about this before, but I think it's really important what you're doing, bringing a light to this. So I'm more than happy to share my story. As you mentioned, I've been in the fire department going on 14 years, be 14 years next month. My story is a little unique in that my journey started with, it was a cancer diagnosis that flipped my life upside down that ended up pushing me into a fire department career. So a little bit about me. I grew up in Alexandria, Virginia, born and raised. I was a three-sport athlete in high school, very competitive guy, went to college. I was at Frostburg State University playing football, and that was when my life was completely flipped upside down by my cancer diagnosis at age 19. And so it was after that cancer diagnosis where I was at a crossroads very early on as I was entering my 20s. What do you want to do with life? And I started thinking about things. I still very much wanted to be part of a team, part of something larger than myself. And thought a career in the fire service would be something that would be a really good way to stay in that competitive environment and as a way for me to continue to do something physical and very challenging.
0: And so 14 years in a fire service puts us at what year did you join the fire
1: department? It was 2008 i started recruit school it was i still remember the date the higher date july 21st 2008 and
0: you talked about your cancer diagnosis in college and how that turned your life upside down do you want to talk about
1: some of what that cancer was and what the treatment was and how it affected the immediacy of your life at that time so pretty much when i was diagnosed with cancer i'll give you a little bit of the story leading into that i was at frostburg state it was the night before our 1st intrasquad intra-squad scrimmage. And I woke up one night and could not use the bathroom. I remember being in so much pain. I had a pain in my pelvis and in my back, which later I learned to be uh, my kidneys were failing. I woke up that night, middle of the night and could not use the restroom. And I just felt this pressure in my back. So I ended up going to the hospital. It was Sacred Heart Hospital in Western Maryland. And they ended up doing an MRI, but before they did an MRI, they realized that there's a lot of urinary retention here. So they tried unsuccessfully to advance a catheter. So this whole painful process started with pain from the very beginning. Trying to force a catheter in wouldn't go. The tumor was pushing up on the urethra originating from the prostate, ended up getting an MRI. I got the MRI and I remember the physician sitting down with me saying, Hey, look, I am not sure what this is at this point. I do know, however, that we are not equipped to deal with this in Western Maryland, my recommendation would be for you to go back to the DC area and really see what this is and what's going on. But I do think it's serious. So at that point, I was like, okay, I guess this is it. So I called my parents and told them what was going on. And they immediately drove out to Western Maryland from Alexandria, Virginia, brought a U-Haul with them, packed all my stuff, came home and we became, we started on this journey to figure out what in the world is going on. So I meet with an oncologist, a pediatric oncologist, even though I was a young adult Usually these types of growths, these things that they see on MRIs can be an adolescent or pediatric cancer. So they wanted to rule initially started out. They wanted to rule that out. So I met with the oncologist who said, I need to send you to a urologist to biopsy this. So they ended up doing the biopsy. They sent it to the Cleveland clinic and it came back and that's when I realized or learned that I was being diagnosed with rhabdomyosarcoma. It is a very rare childhood cancer, and it impacts two age groups, early childhood. So from birth to about age four or five and then late adolescence. So age 15 to age 19. And so there's two subtypes. One is embryonal and not to bore everybody, but there's two subtypes and one is a lot more aggressive. And because my subtype was the more aggressive one that kicked off another cascade of events. Okay. Now you need PET scans. Now you need CAT scans. Now we need to scan the whole body and see what's going on. So all the results came back from everything and the news just kept getting worse. Initially, they were saying four out of five will walk from this, but if it's the more aggressive subtype, we're looking more at a 40 to 50% shot. And if it's spread outside of the pelvis, then we're probably looking at a 15, to 25% chance of survival. So it was a lot to digest, but I was still hopeful before getting all the results that maybe I'll get some good news here. Cause everything up to this point has been either painful or just terrible news. It can't possibly continue to get worse. And then it continued to get worse. So they said, not only has it escaped the pelvis and the pelvic lymph nodes, but it's in three or four places in your abdomen, your left lung. And we believe we see portions on your brain. So at that point, it's like everything I still remember a. To this day, the wallpaper in that room, I remember what the doctor was wearing. I remember what I was wearing. I remember the look on my mother's face. And the doctor asked, Do you want your mom to stay in the room while I tell you the rest? And I said, Sure, I don't. At this point, it is what it is. I don't see the benefit to having her out. So we sat in the room, and that's when the oncologist said, Here's what's going to happen. Here's what your next year is going to look like. And if the cancer doesn't kill you, there's a decent chance the treatment will. But we're going off the cuff because we get one chance to cure this. And so I was taking all this in, (laughs) I was 19 years old. I was going to say, as a 19-year-old taking it all in. I was 19 years old. I'm like, wait a minute. Literally last night, I was prepping for our first game, our first inter-squad scrimmage. I did really well in that training camp. I was challenging some of the older guys and I felt really good. So I had still had coaches that still didn't know what really was going on. Like I just vanished from Frostburg state and my life was just in doctor's offices over this next three, four days. And the coach and staff didn't even know where it went really. So I'm getting tests, I'm getting all these things and it all culminated in that office where now it's like a, okay, here's your next year. Here's what it's going to look like. You're going to undergo 52 weeks of chemotherapy and some of the chemos that we have to give you are unfortunately, there's not a lot of good news with them. There are a lot of the chemos that we've traditionally seen in the sixties, seventies and eighties, and you're going to get blasted with them. And so there's going to be medications that we have to give you to coat your bladder, you're going to get doxorubicin. It's a very, my prognosis was an awful one. And at the time it completely changed me because immediately And I wish that I could sit here and tell you that I handled it really well and I was strong and I was lift strong, but I completely shut myself off to the world. I went into a very deep depression. I started viewing myself in the past tense and a powerful chemotherapeutic agent. So that was part of my protocol. He mentioned once, if we get the metastases cleared, And you become a candidate for surgery. You're going to have surgery at Johns Hopkins University. And then when everything is done, if you get to that point, you're going to have 32 radiation treatments. So we had, so the course of that year, it was 2004 that I was diagnosed with cancer. And it was like, everything just kept getting, began scouring the internet and things weren't as accessible in 2004 as they are now. Google still existed. I was just trying to find some testimonials from people that have survived this beast. Don't think I found a single case in which somebody had something comparable to what I did. And then you would read the updates and it always ended in their death. So I just assumed that that was going to be the natural progression for me. And so I detached myself from the world. I didn't want people getting too close to me. I didn't want, I started thinking ahead. It was like, I'm not going to see my sisters graduate high school. Oh boy, how's my mom going to process burying a kid and just the suddenness of life going great, competing in college athletics, being out on my own, off campus apartment, life was supposed to be just beginning for me. And I was forced like that snap of a finger to now face mortality. So over the course of the next year just getting blasted by chemotherapy. And every time I needed to get chemotherapy, I had to stay in Fairfax hospital for three or four nights at a time, because with the doxorubicin that I mentioned, it attacks the bladder. So they have to give you medication that coats the bladder. So it doesn't tear your bladder apart. So for the better part of a year, that was my routine. So I was going through all these emotions, getting punished by this treatment. I was 210 pound wide receiver in college. After about four or five months of chemo, because just the aggressive dosaging, just to have a shot to get into remission, I lost over 100 pounds. At one point, I was 110 pounds. Lost all hair. Still remember the night I was in the shower. I was just trying to just relieve some stress, take a boiling hot shower, put the shampoo in the hair, and my hair was all, literally all the hair that I had was essentially two clumps in my palms. And at the same time, my eyelashes and eyebrows started to just peel away. So there was a lot of struggle with, this is my new identity. I can't even eat a regular meal. The chemos were giving me mouth sores down my esophagus. So one bite of food would hurt in six different places. I felt like I was going to die. I was resigned to the fact I knew I was going to die. and I completely viewed myself in the past tense. And in the process, I completely disconnected from everybody around me. And I had people reaching out and trying to give motivation. And I wish I could say I handled it well and took it in stride I'm gonna fight this beast. But I really, I just shelled off and went into deep depression and was angry. And about three, four months into that, I started to get little pieces of good news. Okay. We don't necessarily, we don't see it in the lungs. It doesn't mean it's not there, but we have reason to believe that you're responding and then they measure the size of the tumor in the prostate. And initially what they thought was originating from the prostate, invading the bladder, then the good news was it's just resting against the bladder, not necessarily invading the bladder wall. So we have reason to believe you'll be a candidate for surgery if it trends this way, because we won't have to, it won't be that extreme of an operation. It'll just, we feel it'll peel off if we remove the prostate. So I got, kept getting little pieces of good news enough to keep going with the treatment it was just purely exhausted by going through that gauntlet just to kind of chance to stay alive. And even if it wasn't a good one. So towards month nine, month 10. Now I'm a candidate for surgery. So I go to Johns Hopkins, I have the surgery. And at that point they say this surgery was successful. Right now you're NED, no evidence of disease. And I asked, am I in remission? We don't want to call it remission yet. Your subtype is super aggressive. So we're just going to see how things go. And we still want you to continue on with radiation. Cause one of the first questions I asked was, does this mean I can skip Radiation, yeah. Naturally, that would be a first question. Yeah, because if I can, if I can avoid some of this poison, right? Then I would really like to do that. But that's when they said, "No, we need you. We need to have the radiation because the statistics show that there's a little less chance of relapse if you get the radiation. So we're just going to radiate your pelvis and do a lighter dose radiation to your chest." And I'm going through the radiation. And by this point now, I don't necessarily know if I'm going to live or die. I still have prepared for almost 10 months now that I was going to die from this and accepted that. And it sounds weird to say that it sounds like there's a little machismo to it, but when you've been diagnosed with something like that and forced to face your mortality, it stresses you out. It's such a consistent stressor that eventually you just accept it and that I'm going to die. It's not because I'm trying to exaggerate or or and overemphasize the fact, but I just knew I was going to die. And the reason I'm saying that is because now when they come back and say, you're no evidence of disease, you're in remission. And I'm at month 12 and I'm getting ready to go to my last chemotherapy session. It's, oh, wait a minute. I never thought I was getting to this point. I never for a second thought I was getting to this point where you're no evidence of disease. Technically, now they're starting to use the R word remission and what next? I've never thought about what next. Never give it, ne- I never, it was terrifying to think looking too far down the road. Like it's normal for a 1920 year old to look five, 10 years down the road. Where am I gonna be? Where am I gonna be working? But anytime I would look down the road, I just viewed myself in a cemetery. So I'm, so I'm thinking, wait a minute, I'm, This, the IVs, the central lines, the appointments, the four night hospital stays, this became my routine. This became my safety zone. This became my life. It became something that was regimented that kind of took my mind off mortality and death and how are these people around me going to pick up the pieces? My mom going to financially be crushed by whatever debt is left behind from this. So I was just never. In the mindset of, there's a next chapter here that's post-cancer for you. It's a weird dichotomy of focused on death. You believe you're going to
0: die, but the cure, not the cure, that's a bad word, but the way to get your focus off of your belief that you're going to die is to try to beat it, but you're still convinced you're going to die.
1: Oh, yeah. So it was like, I knew I was going to die, but I hope I don't. So I started to get the little pieces of good news. It was enough to motivate to continue the fight. Ultimately, I just, I thought it was going to be, I was not going to survive this. So at the point now where it's a, I'm a year out, I've just, I had my last chemotherapy. I'm 120 pounds. I see eyebrow follicles starting to grow back, a little peach fuzz on my head. And they say, go live life. You're in remission now. And I'm like, I've... Honestly, I have not prepared for this and it made me incredibly anxious. It made me incredibly anxious as they explained, there was two trains of thought. I'm very excited that I don't have to undergo this treatment and that can have some normalcy, but at the, on the other hand, they were saying all the documented relapses from your disease happen within the first two years off treatment, so what we're going to do is you're going to have the full You're going to have the full, every three months, the blood work, the scans, the CAT scans, the MRIs, if we need to do MRIs. And my doctor was very brutally honest and I appreciate that. But at the time I didn't like being around him because I just felt like there was never anything, but it's not his job to give me good news. It's his job to be honest. I was an adult and so I just felt like. It was very weird to hear him say, you're in remission, go live life. Because my life, that was my entire life for a year. So then I started thinking, what in the world do I do now? So I struggled with what's next for me. What do I do from here? And that's when I started thinking about things. And it just wasn't very practical to go back to Frostburg State. So I figured I wanted to do something close to home that interests me. That isn't going to leave my family in a lot of debt or a lot of stress. So I just want to do something simple. And so I started thinking about what would be something that you see yourself doing that would give you some fulfillment. Cause I still, at this point, even though I'm in remission, I don't think I'm going to live very long. This wasn't a case where I would look into my future and see me around in my thirties. So that's when I started really getting interested in emergency medicine. Something that requires quick thinking in the right now, a fire department career became very appealing to me. And as I was recovering and getting healthy, I enrolled in the paramedic program at Northern Virginia Community College. I talked to a few people that, that began fire department careers a few years before me and just picking their brains a little bit. Everybody mentioned that getting a paramedic certification would make you a little more competitive in the hiring process. Uh, Prince William County came to a hiring fair At the time it was Lieutenant Orphus who came out to the recruiting fair and mentioned, Hey, we need people. For our July class, I had just became certified that may one thing led to another went through the application process. Prince William was the first to offer and full head of steam. I began pursuing the fire department career. So, just a quick shout out because I have to do
0: it to to <laughs> who I know is Captain Orphis. He was my first captain and now a battalion chief in our department and one of the good guys in the department. So that's great that it was that your
1: that was your link to the oh yeah uh, department that was start. the link. He was very uh, he sold Prince William County. He did the job. He mentioned that it was going to be a growing department. There was lots of opportunity. There's a definite need for paramedics and he encouraged me to apply and I did. And I remember I was in the application process with a few jurisdictions, but to his credit, everything moved the quickest with Prince William County. And I felt like everything was on an accelerated clock and I don't have time to waste because if I want to experience any part of this, I just need to go. I just need to go. So I started the academy in July of that year.
0: All right, so real quick, just a synopsis of your time in the fire department. What have you done, what,
1: some of your assignments, and where are you now in the department? Okay, so when I started, I, when I graduated the academy, I went to Medic 4, which is in Gainesville. And I s- spent time both on the medic and on the engine doing all my rookie training and probationary manuals and all that, and then so I spent my first few years At four, I was pretty lucky. I got to spend the first three and a half, four years of my career at four. So then from four, I went to Medic 11. I thought at that point it was time to go for one of those high volume, action packed shifts and sought out Medic 11, had a great time at 11, spent a few years there, ran the absolute best and worst of humanity. (laughs) My time at 11, saw a lot of different things and then from 11 I went to Engine 8 to do my Tech 2 training and then I ended up getting transferred to Medic 8 because the transport unit now it was a newer thing at 8 so it was part of the launch of Medic 508 and then from Medic 508 I went to the academy initially as the Tech 2 assigned to the paramedic program as the training coordinator and from there I took the lieutenant's process and then stayed at the academy. My first assignment as a lieutenant has been as a initial education training lieutenant for EMS training. And so I've spent the last four years at the academy. And then this August I head to fire station 24. So back on a medic unit. Back on a medic unit. Maybe some engine well. time on the one-on-one model. So I'm excited to get over there. So I, we
0: can get into all kinds of stuff. Cause you've seen your fair share of calls and I know what we want to talk about here. And it was from 2014 when Mm -hmm. you were station eight, you want to talk about the station in 2014 and some of that, the crew and how you guys get, got along and how you guys operate it.
1: Oh, absolutely. So I was sent there at the time it was Chief Shiflet as Lieutenant Adamo at the time when I was at 11, I was at tech one and I took my time as a tech one, it was one of the things that worked for me. So a brief thing here, tech one in the department
0: is the, it, I don't want to say lowest, it's the lowest ranking firefighter in, in our fire department.
1: So the structure goes tech one, tech two, Lieutenant captain chief and so on and so forth, but I wanted to take my time as a tech one, I was enjoying it and I really wanted to feel like I was experienced and could handle. Mo- everything at the technician level before I took that process. And so one of those things was when I was at 11, even though I was having a great time, it was really hard to leave medic 11. I felt like if I was going to take the tech two process and get ready for that next step and ride the seat of an engine that I wanted to be on an engine and I wanted to go to a day work engine. So I had the opportunity to talking with chief Shifflett, Lieutenant Adamo, there was an opening, it was a vacancy at engine eight. And so. When I got moved to engine eight, it was with captain Erickson and I was told, Hey, you're also going to get a chance to work with Marcelo Trejo. And so he was transferred at the same time. We had a rookie Jose Rianos. who was Matt Stewart at the time. And we just clicked as a crew very early on. We had a great time at station eight. I learned a lot and I was assigned to Marcelo. He was going to do my tech two mentoring. And so the really interesting thing about that was I knew Marcelo from around the department and anytime you roll in details, you just always had a good time with him. and he was really big into the CPAT stuff. So there was some, so we knew him from there. And so in 2014, I was really enjoying life. It was my first time, my first true where you're assigned to an engine company. And I understood it. the need was for me to be on medic units before that. But I had an opportunity to go to an engine company, do it every day, do the engine checkout every day under the eye of Marcelo. So he took me under his wing, took us all under his wing, really. And we just got close. The crew, we worked out together every day. We shared a food pantry. There were times where during that five o'clock hour, you know, before you shut down shop at 1800, where we would just go out and shoot hoops in the back and just little things like that. Now we got really close. And that was unbeknownst to me at the time, the 2014 was going to be a very trying year.
0: Tell me a little bit about Marcelo because uh, our department knows him and some departments outside of, of Prince William know Marcelo because of things that have happened.
1: But give us a little background on Marcelo. What was he like? So, Marcelo, he was. He's just so, there was just so much passion and joy for being a firefighter. He was somebody that took great pride in being a mentor and he really wore it on his sleeve and we had a rookie at the time who was struggling and they would tell you that and they have since moved on, but there were times where everybody else would get frustrated and, but if he had to explain something 25 times, He would explain 25 times to somebody and there was never, there was never a judgmental tone to it. And the happiness that he got from other people enjoying the job was always something that stood out, very passionate about PT and station comp, the things that bring people together at the station were all the things that stood out about him, the camaraderie, the conversations at the front bumper, the things that we tend to take for granted were all things that he naturally got people to gravitate towards. So we looked forward to kicking the little hack, I would never kicked a hacky sack around in my life. But one of the things that he liked to do was go to the front engine and just kick the hacky sack. The snack time with Treo, he always pack his food pantry with all kinds of stuff. Just those little trips to the food pantry, working out together in the morning and the genuine happiness that he would get from somebody enjoying the job. He would spend time just, if there was 15, 20 minutes around the station, you could probably find him cleaning one of his tools or looking on the internet for a new accessory to go in his gear. He just loved the job. And because of that, when you see somebody that both is, he's willing to be a mentor and they love the job so much and they're so inviting with the personality, it's very easy to get really close with somebody develop a close bond in a rather short period of time, which is what I felt happen at station eight. You mentioned when we spoke before,
0: Marcelo was going through some stuff in his private life as well. I don't know how much you want to get into that.
1: So I do know that he had some mental health struggles. He alluded to those openly in conversations at the station. Sometimes he mentioned that he was particularly struggling with depression and bouts of anxiety and mentioned that he had received treatment for that in the past. And he didn't talk about it a lot, but we did have those conversations at the station level. So we knew that it existed. We knew that it was something that he would talk about with us in in, in private at times. Were there any other signs around the station of, of any of that? This is a great question because you always think back, was there something that could have opened our eyes to maybe that something in particular was really bothering him or getting to him. And honestly, I can't say that there were any signs to us. He was maintaining and doing well. We felt as if the environment at station eight was really good for him. We felt that we were cohesive. And so there was nothing, at least to me, that, that stood out as any particular red flag. But we did know that these were things that he has struggled with in the past and that he's been fairly open about it in conversations at the station. And so we would have, we would have, and it was never too much in depth, but he would let you in and have some of those discussions here and there at the station. So
0: again, I'm leaving it open to you because if you want to tell the story of how, of what
1: transpired. Okay, so coming up on July 4th, 2014 so we'll just start with with the bombshell we were called it was at the time tech 2 draxler ben draxler a close friend of mine were partners on the medic union for years right around the time that medic 508 went live it was still the day work engine so it was early on when medic 508 went live i think we were only a few weeks in where the shift work medic still intersected during the week with the engine. And so I had transitioned from being on the engine crew to now being assigned to the medic unit. And so we were on shift July 4th, but there was plans and talks of people at the station meeting and celebrating July 4th with Treo. So we got a call from Captain Erickson who called over to the station. And asked us, I remember he, I got on the phone and he said, hey, I need you to sit down. So when he, when I can feel through the tone of the conversation that, okay, this, what happened? So we we're sitting down, put on a speakerphone, and that's when he, he informed us that Marcelo had died by suicide. And that day, July 4th, 2014, is something that, I can remember the conversation. I can remember where I was sitting, it completely stands out to me as a day that I'll never forget because I had never been in a situation in life. And this is somebody that has been through a cancer diagnosis that dealt with something as gut wrenching as losing somebody. And it's very hard to explain to somebody who hasn't necessarily done what we've done to explain all the little ways. Even if you don't necessarily see eye to eye with somebody at the station, the closeness, whether you want to admit it or not, you become close with people in ways that is hard to describe to, to people that, that don't do this for a living or have not been exposed to this, but to lose somebody from your crew, the, the sudden finality of just the permanence of the, of Trejo being gone just threw us completely. And there was no, nobody was prepared for that news. Nobody was willing to accept that. Nobody knew what to do next. You had a firehouse and a department just full of traumatized people because this was completely, it was just such a shock and everything over those next few weeks, months was just so eerie. It's like the conversations we had, because in the same year, my son, my first son was due, my first child was due that fall. And we had so many conversations about him coming and helping with the crib. He loves painting nurseries and he wanted to come and do that. And just the little conversations and even leaving, leading up to two days before July 4th, he was still planning gym contracts with people coming in and getting some new gym equipment at station eight. And even the person that he was working with would call it, the station two or three weeks later. And nobody knew how to tell this contractor who became close with him because he was just very welcoming personality. And he was very excited to take on that project at the station eight gym. And even the con the gym con gym source contractor that was going to be getting the equipment when we told her the news just. And over the next few months, it was like grappling with the finality of this and little things like his locker still cracked open. His snacks are still in the pantry. His basketball shoes are still under his laptop. The keyboard is still in the position that he left it and nobody wanted to touch his stuff. We wanted to leave it there. We spent hours watching his YouTube videos where he's just being dad to his daughter who he loved dearly. And the videos he had with his dog, he was very good with videography. And even at the time, looking back, it's pretty impressive that he was doing those things in 2014. But we were just watching those videos over and over. And at that point, In my life, and really, most of us could probably say the same thing. It just completely stopped us in our tracks. It stopped you how? Immediately there was an anger. The, why the hell would you do that? We needed you here. Daughter needs you here. So there was some anger. And then there was a, and I know in my case, and I won't speak for anybody else, I was going back. I was re examining calls. Did I miss something? Did I miss a sign? Did I miss a, an instance in which he was reaching out? Was I in tune? Was my mind elsewhere? Was I connecting the way I should be? And just the, I just, it was just analysis paralysis at that point like i think i've replayed every conversation we had i was looking for little clues and i just spent so much time doing that that i just became mentally exhausted and even at the even at his funeral still i still couldn't process just the complete just the suddenness the how unexpected it was and just how it deeply hurt. It was very hard. It was very hard to be at his funeral and it was a complete spectrum of emotions. It was a beautiful service, but damn it, we shouldn't be here. And just seeing the pain in people's faces because at this point, even though I knew him for years, it was mainly in passing and in details, but it wasn't until those six, seven months that we were stationed together where I feel like we had a really good bond in that time. Whereas there were people that have been lifelong friends with him and people that he spent his entire career being close with. And there was just so many people impacted by that. And I remember thinking I have to do something with this anxious revisionist need to try to recreate and fill this void with something productive because I'm going to drive myself crazy. So then as we got it into the winter of 2014 and my son was born and I was on baby leave, that's when I really started thinking that we really need to do something as a department because man, if we have to go through this again, and as we get bigger and we start to reflect general population, the concern would be that this is not an isolated event. And so what can I do with my standing in the department? Is there something more that I can do? And so that's when I started really looking for ways to connect with people and started to have these conversations about mental health. This is when I started to pursue the peer support route and realized that we have a very loud siren going off in this department, in the fire service in general. And what can I do to get on the other side of this thing?
0: So you take an interest in the department and the department's mental health and
1: what did you do for yourself? I did absolutely nothing for myself. And so to paint the picture for this, when I was explaining earlier, how just kind of suddenness, the breakneck speed in which You're fighting for your life, fighting for your life, chemo, radiation, surgery. Oh, by the way, you're in remission. Go live life. It was like somebody was, had kinked a garden hose and then just let it go and said, go. And so I was the water in the garden hose and it's like, okay, pursue the fire department career. All that time you spent thinking about your mortality. You're a young guy in your twenties. Forget about it. Now go live life, go run the calls. Go run the nasty car accidents, run into the burning buildings, forget about all that stuff that happened to you when you were 19. I didn't realize at the time because I couldn't verbalize it and couldn't pinpoint it that my cancer diagnosis gave me terrible anxiety. And so I was able to function with it, but that racing, that internal clock, that you're not going to be on this earth very long. You. Don't have much time here. Everything felt like it was an accelerated pace. My mind is always racing. I just felt like the speed in which life was moving was at light speed. Never could internalize that as me being anxious. So I worked the fire department career. I go my first six years in the department, just going to bliss at the same time. Now I meet my wife. I'm. I understand that there are things that are just different about me because of that. But I'm, I spent the first six, seven years, the first half of my career suppressing some of that didn't want to scare off my now wife. So let's come on get over it. Cancer was in the past. You have a career now, your full head of steam, just deal with it. So then situation with Trey happened. And I'm at a crossroads now where it's, I need to do something for others. I got to prevent this. And so in a lot of ways, I think that I felt as if I was self-treating by doing something, right? I'm going to emphasize, I'm going to be a beacon for mental health in the department. I'm going to have these conversations with people. I'm going to make connections with people and take on that mentorship role that trey was so passionate about. And this whole time, I'm not, I'm still, after years, not facing the, just the, and it's really hard to explain because anxiety takes on different forms and different people. And with me, it just felt like my mind was always moving so fast that, and I was always, I just felt like my life had an expiration on it. And so I got to do all these things and do all this stuff and get married and have kids and have the career and move up the ladder in the career so that when I die, my obituary will read, did this, survived by. I felt like I had to do all these things. I didn't realize. I just thought it was a byproduct of surviving cancer and not something that I could actually fix. So I just dealt with it. But after the little scars of the career, the calls that stand out, the things that you remember, you add it to the trauma that I dealt with before getting hired. And then you add the little cuts. Then you add the big event with Treo, And then you're in the aftermath where, okay, this is still very much a problem. I'm struggling, grappling with. What has happened with Treo it's very hard for me to think about his daughter growing up. But, and that, so there's those little seeds of doubt come in you get angry again, you get sad again, you get happy again because you start to remember some of the great conversations you had. So those emotions are running the gambit. And then finally now I start to realize that as my son is growing up, And we're starting to see that he's having some struggles. I never dealt with the aftermath of the cancer diagnosis. I feel like I tried to hide everything by being very active in my fire department career. We had the big trauma losing Marcelo, and then I'm trying to transition becoming a father and I pour, I feel like I pour everything into, okay. I'm not going to be around for my kids very long because Even now, it's hard for me to think about myself here into my sixties and seventies. It's almost like I'm living in overtime. And it wasn't until recently that I got help with that, but now my son's starting to have some struggles. So you talk about from 2014 to and beyond into where we are now. My son is starting to get into the preschool age, starting to have some uh, some focus problems, some issues with aggression, just a very anxious disposition. Kicked out of preschools. We're trying to find out what is wrong. We, My wife and I got him on an IEP at age three because there were just lots of behaviors that were troublesome. And he was starting to embrace the the kid that was isolated, the trouble kid. And I started thinking I'm not going to be around when he's a teenager or when he's a man, so got to fix this now. So all my resources were get him the IEP, get him a counselor, get him on the right therapy, get him on the right course. And so I just feel like that through the course of my adulthood, there's always been something that has been distracting me from addressing things that I'm struggling with, or how can I truly work on myself? So it all came to a head in in 2020 when my wife left her job and to the main impetus behind that was that she, she could be home with the kids and be with Jackson, our son, and be the fixture in his life to be the consistent, if he needs to go to therapy, he goes to therapy. If he needs to go to appointments, she does all that and she's that consistent presence in his life. We didn't think they, we got to a point where it was like, we can't pay somebody or to have another presence achieve the end result that we want with him. So she left a career that she worked very hard to obtain. She was a CPA. So now she's home, stay at home mom. And we went to a one income. We were a one income household in Loudoun County. And the totality of, I never addressed underlying anxiety. I don't think I ever truly fully processed, but losing Treo did to me. I just immediately seek to, how can I take a tangible step to, to help others? The issues with my son, the fact that now we need to move from Loudoun County to a cheaper area to make this work, the stress of working overtime. Everything came to a very explosive mm-hmm. conclusion with. At this point now, my wife and I were arguing all the time. And right before she was able to leave her job, it's okay. He got kicked out of preschool again. Who's getting him? Are you picking him up? Am I picking him up? I can't leave. I'm teaching. I can't leave. I have a client and the stress of uh, one of his tests costs $1,500. And it's this specialist and it's that specialist and it's this meeting and it's this IEP and. We were just starting to fray, so I got to a point where it's okay. You never addressed what facing your mortality did to you. You just push it aside. You started to meet your wife. You suppress some of these things. You start. You get little cuts from the fire department career. The situation with Treo, and just how shocking that was, and how that knocked us all back. Then it progresses into. Issues with my son and everything now is just my head was so foggy that I was having a hard time focusing at work. I was just, I was tired all the time. My dietary habits were terrible, I was frustrated all the time. I was just, disre- I was becoming disrespectful to my wife. We were fighting, arguing all the time, and I was hitting below the belt. There were things that I was saying to her that I'll never get back. And I don't know what exact day it was, but it was during the move. We were reestablished, we were full head of steam, starting a new life down in Culpeper, we're going to move to an area that's more, we're going to be family centered, we're going to have the yard, everything's going to be fixed. But it was during the move that all these things just the stress of everything, the feeling like I have no answers, no outs and truly felt helpless was where I finally came to the realization. If I don't do something, I'm going to lose my marriage. My, I'm not going to be the father my children need. I'm not modeling the behaviors that my son who has very specific special needs I'm not helping him in any way I'm failing in a lot of different areas I'm not managing very well to to on the outside people probably think I'm maintaining and doing pretty well but I certainly that is not the case that is not the actual truth on the inside I finally as a 35 year old man just let go of feeling like I need to control the narrative. No, I don't need any special treatment. No, I don't need anybody to talk to. Yes, I'll deal with this. I let go of that and finally got the help that I needed. Way too late, way too far into manhood, into adulthood. But at that time in 2020 was when, for the first time in my adult life, I felt like I started to have some control through therapy. I was able to connect with a therapist who was able to put a lot of things in context to slow down that internal clock a little bit and to say, essentially, it's okay to feel as if because of what you went through, you're not going to be here for a very long time. But how can we put a plan in place to limit those thoughts so they just don't devour you all day? If you want to have some of those thoughts and you want to really think about things that could potentially go wrong and you want to do that for 10, 15 minutes, okay, great. But you need to set a limit to that and develop some control over it. So if I stress something today, I see a study that comes out that says, oh, sarcoma survivors that had radiation are at increased risk for this in their 40s or 50s. I can't let that completely destroy my entire day, but I can also, I can validate it by, okay, let me read this for 10 minutes. Let me process this and let me do something else for my own good. So it was through therapy and putting it in context that I'm like, what would have happened? Where would I have been? How strong would my marriage be right now if I did this at 29, if I did this at 28, or if I did this before Marcelo? where would I, did I miss something? Would I, would my mind have been clear? Could I connect it in a more effective way? Who knows? Like you ask those questions, but it was legitimately the first time in a long time or the first time in my adult life that I felt like maybe there is another side to this. Maybe this can get better. Maybe I can slow down the internal clock and the survivor's guilt and all these things that just, come from the fire department career and the previous cancer diagnosis, maybe there is a way to cope with this. And I learned that, yeah, there is. And you know what? It feels good. And it feels good to say that. So I connected with a therapist. I would have never considered going on an anxiety med. What a low dose anxiety med combined with therapy for me was the combination that allowed things to slow down enough to communicate with my wife a lot more effectively, to be a father that does not have a really short fuse, to be a better, and for me for right now, this assignment being an educator, EMS educator. When I started to tackle these problems and become a little more open about them, things started to get better. And when I say get better, it means it's always gonna be a peak and Valley type of ordeal. But my wife and I are, the connection is there. We've really worked to salvage our marriage. And when it could have gone one way, we were at the fork in the road. It led to us renewing our vows and renewing the commitment in front of our children. I feel like I have a plan to help my son He's doing better in school. I just feel if only I had addressed this and been more open about it and more honest about it with myself. I just, I wonder maybe how things would have gone. I feel good about what I was able to accomplish while struggling with those things. But now that I know what it feels like to have a plan and to address it and to understand that, hey, sometimes, like the saying goes, strength requires maintenance. So I know that maintenance is very much a part of it. So as I enter this next chapter of life, I feel actually good about i'm not overwhelmed by am i going to die from this is the radiation going to cause a late effect is one of the chemos is a secondary cancer going to come but if it happens i'll deal with it when it happens but how much life am i going to waste worrying about that right now and then you have all the things with all the studies showing that we're at increased risk in the fire service of some of these things so it's my baseline is already higher i've already had the cancer and the treatment So I know that I'm at an increased risk, but I don't let it ruin my day, my week, my month anymore. I just focus on what I can control. And when it takes up too much of my head space, I know that I need to develop a strategy in the moment to not let it stay there. So as long as I do those things, I feel like I have more patience. I feel like I'm a, I feel like I'm a better firefighter. I feel like I'm a better paramedic, better educator, better husband. And so right now. At age 37, I feel like there's finally a system in place to not let these things completely own my life. So what are you doing today? Are you still in therapy? Yeah, so it's not as frequent as it was, but there's check-in sessions. Hey, how, how the last few weeks, last few months, gone what's good what's the area of struggle what are the potential stressors in the short term and in the long term and putting things in perspective and so we're doing that i'm what haven't always been the best about medication compliance sometimes it's just being forgetful so i've made it a habit to understand that's a very important part of my day just as important as that morning cup of coffee and when i focus on me and maintaining those sessions and not calling and canceling them. Or one thing that gives me terrible anxiety is when my yearly physical comes. I can imagine. Oh my God. It's because all that information gets sent to Mm -mm. GW university and they go through fine tooth comb, blood work, protein levels, and they take all this data, they trend it, and I just, there are times where I'm like, they're going to find something this year. I'm getting closer to 40. And some of those thoughts will come up. It's okay. This is it, this could potentially be it. So there's always a sense of that. My, my life depends on that next medical exam and you know what I've just embraced, that's a big ticket item for me. That's a big stressor for me and it's okay for it to be a stressor, but I have to find a more effective way to put borders around it. So it doesn't completely consume the week leading into the the days in which I'm undergoing the test and then the weeks after. Waiting for the results. Waiting for the results and waiting for the phone and is every missed call. Is that the number? Is that right? What are they saying? Why didn't they leave a voicemail? Does it mean something was bad? Didn't need me to come in. So all these things now that it's okay. Marshall, if you don't take the steps to talk about it ahead of time, if you're not compliant with your medication, that's helping very effectively if you're not doing the thing if you're not implementing the strategies learned these yearly exams these trips to gw they're going to completely just ruin an entire week of your life and nothing good ever comes from that if i go into one of th- one of these appointments and they say hey we need to treat this we need to- we believe we caught it early i view it as i hate undergoing these tests, I'd rather not do them where the GW is saying, I've told them that I hate coming here and they're like, Hey, we're not here to tell you you're going to die. We're here to catch it early so that if something comes, we just manage it. But it's hard for me to view it that way. So they're reworking their, your view for you. They are. So they're, they're pulling some therapy on you. Right. But it's, oh yeah. The medical anxiety, but it's manageable now. I have a plan in place and. I just, and I've said this a few times through here, I don't don't want to keep repeating myself, but it's important because it's, what if I didn't play into that stigma? What if I, how much would my, I wouldn't have put my wife through the frustration and the tempers and uh, those dust-ups and blow-ups, how many of those could I have avoided? How many times were I just lost it with the kids? How many of those could I have? have avoided how many times have they seen me like that to where is it going to stick with them just like getting so angry and yelling and being short fused and just being so frustrated is that what how much of that are they going to remember and thankfully they're very and i feel like i was able to get on track and and get the help and get things addressed before they get much older but you do wonder man it feels good to have a plan in place i just wish maybe it was when i was 25 instead of 35, but you know what, we're, we're there now. And if me telling my story can, if there's a young man, young woman in the department or any department or anywhere that listens to this and is dealing some things now. And it is the deciding factor between saying, you know what, he's right. Maybe I should just go in and connect with somebody. And if that process happens earlier for somebody else, I feel like this is all worth it.
0: And that's the purpose that gives everybody some purpose because to, to get that word out and to encourage other people to take care of it before it becomes an issue. That's key. That's obviously what we're trying to do here. So I appreciate you doing that. I have a couple of questions to end with though. Sure. Two things I ask everybody and I apologize because I forgot to bring this up. We (laughs) talked, um, an everyday carry. And I mean that in the sense of obviously the name of the show is the things we all carry we carry a lot of stuff into a call whether you're a paramedic going in for a medical call you're a bucket firefighter going in for a fire there's mm-hmm. things we carry into a fire the tools we carry to take care of ourselves in a call but there's those things that we call we carry out as well and the scars the whatever you want to call them the traumas that we carry out other than that other than those things what's something you have on your person everyday carry that you feel naked without
1: like a physical item yeah or whatever Let's see, that's actually a really good question. I got to think about that one for a second. <laughs> All
0: right. You think about that one and we're going to, I'm going to hit you with another one. All right. All right. So you can multitask. You're All an instructor. You can handle yeah. it. What's a book you want to suggest
1: to people? A book I want to suggest to people is, let's see, what's over there? I'm trying to think of, I've read so many things over the last few years. So one, one thing for me that was important for me, and I know there's going to be people that listen, managing the explosive child.
0: Managing the explosive
1: child, yeah, okay, and the re- the key takeaway there being whether you have a child or not, there's so many basic communication principles, and I can look at it's either managing the explosive child or it's the explosive child, but when we were so stressed out in dealing with our son's struggles, there's so many basics of communication that. When you read that book and how to talk to somebody in crisis or somebody dealing with big emotions, there are takeaways from that book that I feel are universal across all spectrums of communication. So when somebody is at wit's end and you're talking, you in this case, you're dealing with children who have explosive personalities and struggle with big emotions how in the moment and in the minute first of all how can you prevent that how can you make them feel supported in the moment and how can you talk to them in a way that gives them an out and so that they can get to the other side of their struggle without you exacerbating the issue and not intentionally but when you read that this would work in how I talk to my wife. when I mean, she's dealing with something stressful or dealing with somebody at work. There's this very, there's communication principles and usually people that seek that kind of book out are at wits in and dealing with a child with a difficult personality, but if you are interested just in human communication and effective communication and this leadership principles in general, there's so many things in there that kind of carry over that I think it would be a good read for anybody. I just Googled it
0: while you were talking. It is. Yeah, exposed so, to child. I, everybody asks, I asked the same questions. I'm going to link it in the show notes anyway. So yeah, sure. they'll, have a, they'll have a way to find it.
1: And so then something that I carry with me that I hate to give him credit, <laughs> but Chuck Bonus as a gift. he actually gave, it's a multi-use. It's a pen light. It's a pen. It's a something that where you can get a, a measurement and so one thing, one thing for me is I always go through, I always lose pin lights. I always am bad about something to write with. So for that, it's just a little tool I keep in my picket. So if I need, if I need to assess a patient, if I need a little bit of light in a dark setting, if I need to measure something r- really briefly, then I'm able to do this with this little gift that he got. Nice. All
0: right. There you go. Perfect. And you, you had to give him a shout out. Yeah, oh yeah. So, right.
1: I, I always have to needle chuck a little bit. All right. I
0: appreciate your time. I know you got to get back and you got to teach this afternoon. So I will let you go. And once again, I appreciate it. Thank you for being open. Thank you for being honest. And thanks for a little bit of vulnerability today. So thanks for having me. All right. Cool, man. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Things We All Carry. Head over to the website, thethingsweallcarry.com for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourselves and remember to check in on each other.